0: Episode 49 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by Michael Vadas, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now in our New York office. Michael, what is keeping you busy this week?
1: I'm back working on my Taser case, uh, which we won in the Supreme Court uh, and sent it back to trial. And this is a case involving a, a young man who died after being tasered eight times. Uh, Simply for not getting up off the ground. Uh, And now the officer whom we've sued has filed for bankruptcy and been declared bankrupt. So question about whether our suit should be dismissed on that basis. So we're
0: responding to his new motion to dismiss. All right. And Jason Weinstein, uh, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things, and is now doing white-collar and civil litigation at Steptoe. Jason, uh, uh, I know you have to head out uh, pretty quickly. What uh, is keeping you busy? Uh,
2: a couple of white-collar matters. Uh, and uh, in the non-white-collar space, i um, working on getting ready for a tabletop exercise, a breach simulation for a large Internet company with Michael, and I'm
0: working on. Some uh, Bitcoin regulatory advising this week for a couple of companies. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, I, I know you love that stuff. Uh, and by Meredith Rathbone, a partner in Steptoe's International Department uh, here in D.C. Uh, uh, Meredith, what is keeping you busy?
3: Uh, well, unfortunately, I'm first recovering from the Broncos loss last
2: night.
3: <laughs> um, it takes a lot of mental energy, but um, uh, it's sanctions law. Is keeping me busy. I think I have one to thank in great part for that, yeah. for making sanctions sexy again. But, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, Russia sanctions, Cuba sanctions, uh, North Korea sanctions.
0: Wow, okay. Maybe Iran in the future? Maybe
3: Iran soon.
0: And that is Juan Zarate, the man responsible for making uh sanctions sexy? Boy, that's a uh,
4: that's a quite a compliment. It's not my looks, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just uh, posit that.
0: Uh, I have to say though, I, I introduced you at the last uh event we were at as the Lord Byron of government policy. Mad, bad, and dangerous to know. So uh you know, it's it it's a theme. Somehow your sex appeal just uh, overcomes the, your, your yeah. looks. My, <laughs> wife,
1: my wife may not appreciate that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. Sir. So uh, Juan is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic International Studies and a senior national security analyst at CB News, CBS News and a visiting lecturer at Harvard Law School and a national security and financial integrity consultant. Whew
4: can't figure
0: out what I want to be. Yeah, <laughs> well, listen, uh, that, that's true for most of us. Uh, uh, and before joining CSIS and uh, starting all of those other uh, endeavors, Juan was the first ever Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for uh, Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, uh, an office that really now is um, an undersecretary office, effectively, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, has thrown Treasury deep into the intelligence community. Uh, As we'll talk about uh, in a bit. Uh, So why don't we get started with our uh, new headline service, which uh, frankly ought to be called News or Snooze, uh, uh, where I ask people uh, whether we should care about the following headlines from last week. Uh, New credit cards may fall short on fraud control. This actually might be news. Michael, what is going on here?
1: Yeah, uh, banks that issue credit cards are, are putting chips on them now to improve security, but they've chosen not to uh, require uh, users to use a PIN number along with the chip. Instead, they're, they're continuing to rely on signatures, which to me is uh, pretty much a joke, because every time I use my credit card, I, I try to test how ridiculous my signature can be and how far from my actual signature, and it's basically taught me that as long as you put a mark on the piece of paper, it will be accepted. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I think this shows that credit card companies aren't really losing a lot of money or enough to really make them care about good security or else they'd, they'd go with the PIN approach. And, and I will say, too, I'm disappointed that I got a notice from my uh, Visa card issuer that they're – No longer going to include my photograph on my credit card, if if our listeners could could see the card. I've had this picture on here since 1991, Uh, and I always thought this was a pretty nifty uh, idea, except for the fact that my picture hasn't changed since 1991, and I think it was a couple of years old at the time, so it obviously hasn't been uh, all that useful as a device.
0: Yeah, you know, it it is. it used to be called chip and pin. The whole point was there was going to be a pin, and it was adopted in the wake of Target uh, because the assumption was, I think it was probably wrong, that somehow chip and pin would have helped with uh, the security uh, uh, problems, and um, retailers were given a deadline for spending boatloads of money to get the pin readers in place, and now... It's so, oh, never mind, Emily Letella making uh, banking policy.
1: Yeah, you know, I think uh, at least one bank said they tested it with uh, consumers and people didn't like it, which I guess is not surprising. Nobody likes to have to use a PIN, but debit card uh, users uh, have to use PINs, and I don't think it's led to a reduction in the use of debit cards.
0: All right, so this really is news. Uh, okay, next uh, next topic. FBI says warrants are not needed for stingrays. Uh, senators express doubts. Jason, news or snooze? Uh, it's a little both. I'd say the
2: snooze part is uh, Senator Grassley uh, complaining about something DOJ is doing. That's not exactly man bites <laughs> dog. Uh, a little more significant that Senator Leahy is joining him in, in questioning what the FBI is doing. Um, it's, it's also snooze uh, because, you know, the FBI has a policy now that uh, – agents are required to get a search warrant when they use a stingray unless there are certain exceptions that apply, like an imminent threat to public safety or it's a fugitive or if it's going to be used in a public place or a place where there's no reasonable expectation of privacy. That's all legally quite reasonable and correct. Um, The implication of a letter that Senator Leahy and Senator Grassley sent to the department to to both Homeland Security and Justice is that if they're not getting a search warrant, then they're not getting judicial authorization, and that's not correct at all. Um, Even in those situations in which the FBI doesn't get a warrant, unless it's an imminent uh safety threat, they're getting a judge's permission. They're just getting a judge's permission in the form of a pen register or a 2703 D order, which require less than probable cause, but still require the agent and the prosecutor to make a, a factual showing that satisfies the judge that the, the technique is warranted. Um, along with cell phone searches that we had earlier and cell tower information, this is now like the third or fourth frontier uh in which law enforcement is being challenged by the privacy community and now by members of Congress for not doing enough to protect privacy, uh, even in situations in which they're getting a judge's permission to use a technique because the, the privacy community is saying they're not uh, making enough of factual showing and they're not holding themselves to enough of a, a high standard.
0: So somebody somebody uh, recently uh, was... That was talking about some group that uh, I think was the same group that Juan and I were both at, uh, whether they ought to bring in the privacy groups so they could be, have a dialogue. And I said, uh, the problem with the privacy groups is they want what John L. Lewis wanted when he took the miners out on strike. He, they want more. Whatever it is, they want more. And and so uh, in this case, uh, if you're going to, uh, to a judge, well, you should go to a judge and have a tougher standard.
2: To, That's right. And if you're going to a judge and getting a search warrant, well, you should have asked, it should have been clear convincing evidence yeah. eventually. So everybody's going to do everything beyond a reasonable doubt.
0: Yeah, <laughs> in which case you can skip the, uh, right. the, <laughs> the, the, the trial afterwards. Uh, okay, newsers uh, news: or snooze, EU data supervisor presses for privacy order overhaul in the European Union in 2015. This is totally snooze. Uh, th- he'll be saying the same thing in 2016 and 2017. This guy is new. Uh, uh just uh, uh, named uh, the uh, uh, data supervisor. For the European Union institutions, but uh, that uh, that office has been trying to turn itself into the chief privacy spokesman for uh, Europe, uh, and uh, this is an effort to get uh, a bill passed uh, that did not pass last year under in the old uh, parliament. And um, my guess is we'll have more trouble than expected uh, after the um, uh, Charlie Hebdo uh, attacks, although it's not directly uh, relevant. So snooze. Uh, Lyft and Uber, yes.
1: No, I was just going to say others in the EU have already signaled, even before Charlie Hebdo, that uh, it was not going to happen this year. So I think there's there's virtually no chance of anything uh, being finalized this year.
0: Yeah, uh, that, that would be my guess. Okay, so uh, since you spoke up, uh, how about Lyft and Uber uh, answer mail from Senator Franken? Uh, news or snooze?
1: Uh, I think this is news in the sense that Lyft is clearly trying to capitalize on the concern about privacy and I think is setting itself up as the, the privacy-concerned uh, uh, company in contrast to Uber. Uber didn't really answer Senator Franken's questions with any specificity. Which really ticked him off. While Lyft, I think, provided pretty specific answers and showed that its policies do greatly limit its employees' access to customers' information now. Uh, and so we'll see if that has any effect on the marketplace.
0: Yeah, that would, uh, you know, uh, Baker's Law on these things are, uh, uh, consumers talk a lot about privacy, but they don't care. Uh, and, uh, this will be a test of it. If Lyft, uh, suddenly, uh, develops, uh, momentum and Uber stalls, then, uh, I'm wrong. We'll see. Uh, okay. New York DA bashes Apple and Google for phone encryption plans. Michael, news or snooze? <coughs>
1: Uh, Snooze. I mean, he's basically repeating what the FBI uh, has said and and a few other law enforcement officials uh, raising concerns about uh, uh, law enforcement not being able to get uh, valuable evidence even with a search warrant. Um, He did cite one example uh, involving a a homicide where the New York police were unable to get video from the victim's uh, phone because it was encrypted. But I think... When they rely on examples, there are so few that it almost underscores the argument of privacy advocates that this isn't really going to have a huge impact on investigations.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, German government sites shut down by denial of service attack. Uh, does that tell us anything, Jason?
2: No, I, I think it's uh, it was a, a pro-Russian group calling itself Cyber Burket that apparently shut down three websites, including Chancellor Angela Merkel's own. Webpage. I think the only news to come out of it is that she didn't figure out a way to blame
0: the NSA for it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's 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 so 2014. Um, okay, uh, Sony hackers got sloppy, says FBI director. Uh, I, I, this one is sort of news because uh, uh, Jim Comey revealed a, a little bit more evidence uh, uh, justifying the North Korea. Um, uh, uh, attribution essentially saying while we were watching um, paste bin and email traffic from these alleged, uh, uh, you know, uh, hackers. Uh, uh, Some of them logged on from uh, IP addresses that we knew were North Korean, uh, probably by mistake, almost certainly by mistake. And as soon as they realized that they had logged on directly, they jumped off again. But uh, they were there long enough for us to spot them. Uh, uh, Jason, uh, uh, does this, do you think this, puts to rest the, uh, the Grassy Knoll conspiracies or are we going to have to listen to that forever?
2: I think we're going to have to listen to that for at least a little while longer. I think even before um, Jim Comey made the, these additional revelations, it should have been clear to the Grassy Knoll community that the government wasn't sharing all the reasons for the attribution. Yeah. And, and as Comey said, I think in the same remarks, they're still not revealing all of the reasons for the attribution because they want to give up sources and methods. But I, I think that folks who are... Uh, Uh, subscribe to the grassy mill theory are not going to be satisfied by this. The the one thing I think is interesting is that uh, the people who immediately came out and said that the the North Koreans must have done it deliberately and not by mistake. Um, So they can (laughs) establish to their overseers that that they engage in the hacking. But I I think,
0: as you said, it seems pretty clear it was not intentional. Yeah, it's it's very funny. And then there are other people who think, oh, you know, now we've revealed to them that they made that mistake and uh, they'll never make it again. I'm not sure about that either. Right. Uh, Although... uh, Uh, You know, they may have been fed to dogs already, for all we know, given the nature of the North Korean regime. Uh, um, All right, FBI asks for more information sharing. News or snooze, Michael?
1: Uh, Snooze. Jim Comey gave a speech in which he said Congress really needs to pass legislation that will provide liability protection for companies that share cybersecurity information with the government. This is a refrain that the companies have been uh, making for a long time and Comey was just adding his voice to that
0: uh, that side of the debate. And that's that's pretty much what the Obama administration position is. I don't think this is different from there from the general position, is it?
1: No, it's not. And you know, the, the premise that this is what's keeping companies from sharing information with the FBI is something I've I've always questioned since my time with the FBI. I think it's it has some effect, but I don't think that's the main
0: reason companies aren't sharing with the FBI at all no i uh, it might have something to do with the fact that the FBI rarely shares back but uh uh that's it well i i,
1: uh, I, would, disp- I would dispute that, i would dispute that notion too i mean i think the FBI does share a lot of information it 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 tells companies they've been hacked when they didn't otherwise know it um are they perfect far from it but they, they share more than people uh realize
0: okay uh, i'll 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 let you have that i, I, I sort of half agree yeah. uh FCC will continue punishing data security violations. Uh, uh, Jason, uh, um, this is a reference to the fact that the FCC just had a couple of uh, data uh, security uh, uh, cases, uh, uh, so they're new to the game.
2: But Right, but it's still news. It was essentially in the context of the FCC chairman taking a victory lap in a letter with Senator Bill Nelson from Florida who was questioning whether the fines in those two recent cases were big enough. And and Chairman Wheeler uh, making clear that this was going to be a priority for the FCC and that if, if a bigger fine was appropriate,
0: they would not hesitate to impose it. So um, so you, it would only be news if USDA had decided it was going to also get in the privacy enforcement. That's right. System. I think I think
2: we should have a segment where we try to name
0: all the agencies uh, that are, right. not in, are not involved in data <laughs> privacy, and it will be a very, very short segment. That's that's right. There's nothing at Treasury that isn't involved in privacy, right? I, mean, I think that's on. probably right yeah. Yeah, at this point. Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, Russia extends deadline for data localization. Uh, uh, I think this is probably a snooze. They, they they had a deadline. It was about a year from now. Then in a fit of peak to punish Western companies, they moved it up to last week. Uh, and then they realized they weren't going to be able to do that. Now they've moved it back again, uh, but not quite as far as it used to be, my bet is they aren't going to be able to enforce it uh, then. The only thing that was newsworthy here is apparently they're moving it because companies inside Russia said we can't comply with the law, which didn't used to be a, a problem with uh, passing laws in, in Russia, but apparently now <laughs> you're actually expected to comply. Uh, so I, I think uh, not particularly interesting. Uh, um, Unless you have a billion dollars, yes. in case you don't have to comply. I, I That's right, uh, and, and, and in which case you're probably not in Russia uh, right now. Um, okay, the the big news I think uh, that we probably ought to dig into is the Charlie Hebdo uh, uh, attack, uh, uh, and uh, it's going to have an effect in. In Europe, on some of their um, uh, security and uh, um, cybersecurity policies, and it's going to have an effect on the debate here um, because of the uh, demonstration that uh, we're, you know, we're not out of the woods as far as terrorism is concerned. We can't just assume that was a Bush problem and uh, that we've now uh, taken care of it. Uh, um, a, and I guess I'm. I'd I'd like your thoughts. Um, I'll start with Jason. What do you think actually is going to be the impact on, say, 215 reauthorization, which has to happen by June 1?
2: Um, It's a a fascinating question. I know what I think the answer should be, um, because I think that, uh, you know, just to echo an observation you made off the air, um, this is a pretty good argument for why 215 should not be allowed to expire, that... uh, I do think it's interesting that, as I was thinking about it this weekend, that in the post-Snowden era, while the EU has been criticizing U.S. surveillance practices vigorously, you've had both France and the U.K. pass new surveillance laws or or, uh, implement new surveillance laws that give those countries even greater authority than they already had. Um, to uh, go after electronic evidence and conduct electronic surveillance without any judicial review whatsoever. The
0: European attacks on the United States found to be hypocritical. Yeah, I think yeah. that qualifies as snooze. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: but uh, but at the same time, you know, we talked earlier about the um, the FBI Leahy Grassley thing. You know, you, you juxtapose that with what U.S. law enforcement uh, is going through. Uh, you know, they're on the defensive about whether the standards they have to meet are high enough when they do get judicial authorization in advance. Um, and have always required some degree of judicial review. It's just a question of what, what level based on what's showing. And and, uh, and in the EU, that's, that's not the case at all. Where
0: are all those people who always tell us that we should learn from our more civilized cousins in other countries and adopt uh, international norms because uh, you know, three-quarters of the hoops that law, U.S. law enforcement has to jump through would be gone. That,
2: that's right, or certainly a significant portion of them. But I, I think that this will certainly provide momentum for... The defenders of 215 and the people who argue that it should continue.
0: Yeah, I noticed that uh, one of the things they're doing in Europe is uh, uh, trying to accelerate the European. PNR program, the one that they uh, that I spent years fighting with the European Union over whether it was uncivilized or a crime against humanity, uh, and uh, the uh, now it appears that we just weren't doing it right. Uh, you know, <laughs> if, if you say it in French, it's so much more civilized. Um, but they are probably going to get their PNR program up and running uh, all across Europe. Uh, at which point they'll tell us that um, we're going to have to come to them for the information because uh, they can't trust us to, to process it ourselves. Um, uh, Michael, what are your thoughts about uh, what's going to happen as a result of these, these attacks?
1: Well, I, I agree with Jason that it, that it will give some momentum to the supporters of 215, but but I guess I disagree in, in that I don't think it should uh, because, uh, number one, 215 has the 215 metadata program has not been... Of great use. Um, I think that's been confirmed by the administration. That's been confirmed by independent analysts. And so, if it's not of much use, it's not of
0: much use, whether to sac- me, me, uh, stopped or not. Let me push back on that because I think it was it was created when we were expecting a second wave of attacks like 9/11, uh, which were attacks that were carefully planned and recruited for in a safe haven, uh, and then launched with only a little bit of additional support from back in the, uh, the haven um, uh, by people who got into the country uh, uh, as uh, uh, folks with no record. Um, that is, you know, we haven't had a safe haven for that kind of recruiting until very recently. That's the kind of attack that this was. Uh, that is to say they have been trained abroad, sent back, then they, they used their training to carry out the attack, with very minimal, if any, contact to back home. If you're going to find an attack like that, you really need to find that one that one call back to the uh, the guys you trained with to say, you know, how do I do, you know, how do I deal with this problem or that problem? Uh, and if that's the kind of attack we're going to see, a program that looks for calls to known terrorist numbers. By people in the United States, and then tries to assemble the social graph of the guy who made that call in real time is exactly what you need. Yeah,
1: but I think you know it's not as though we haven't had occasions in which it, it could have uh, proven effective because there are t- domestic supporters of terrorism who have been under surveillance, and the the program has been used, uh, and it hasn't amounted to much. So I don't, you know, I'm not sure that the situation is so different now that, that you know that now we're going to have more domestic terrorists, and so we need to use this program. I don't think it's going to, it would necessarily prove any more effective. And uh, the other um, part of this is I don't think there's any demonstration that the alternatives that have been proposed, which would keep the information stored with the companies, uh, would be such a, uh, a hindrance to law enforcement's use of the information. that 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 would make a material difference from where the program is today. You know, I I think what will be interesting is if this causes Congress to actually pass uh, an extension of the program, what will the administration do? Since it has said it supports an alternative and doesn't think this program in its current form is vital, are are they going to be pressured by the politics of this into agreeing? Is the president going to be pressed into signing an extension?
0: yeah I, my guess is he 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 will be he's, he's he's always been reasonably tough on on terrorism though you sometimes wondered whether his heart was in it he, he he went along with uh tough counterterrorism measures uh one of the things that i proposed recently to somebody uh on the hill was uh why don't you adopt this alternative approach where uh the fbi goes around with uh, uh, subpoenas uh, uh and run it in parallel with the existing 215 program, so that uh, you know whether it actually works and can can provide timely information. Because uh, until you've actually tried it, you can't be sure it's going to work. All right. Um, yeah. You like, that? like uh, this, that? this is this. That's Juan uh, uh, weighing in as I was hoping he would. Uh, so Juan, you. are In your capacity as CBS commentator, you've probably talked a lot about this. A little too much. Yeah, okay. I prefer that these uh, (laughs) these events not happen, of course. But
4: to to the point that you all are making, I I think there are really three levels of impact on the debate here in the United States, if not the transatlantic debate. One has to do with all of the implements and measures around counterterrorism, because, because I think, regardless of the specifics of the particular programs, I think. The debate will emerge again, and you see this pendular swing any time there's a, a successful attack. People disregard the plots disrupted and, right. and the plans and arrests made uh, you know, around the world, and those happen all the time. I've reminded folks of the significant arrests in France over the last two years. Very significant networks and themselves have been disrupted, well-armed, well-financed. Uh, well-coordinated groups that the French counterterrorism authorities have taken down thanks to their surveillance and counterterrorism authorities. But once an event actually occurs, and it, when it's dramatic and strategic like the ones we've seen in Paris, you do have a reassessment thematically around the tools that law enforcement security has to find blind spots. And I think thematically that's where you're starting to see the debate. So it's not just around data and surveillance, and that certainly will be part of the, the mix here, and it's certainly... If, it appears that the French missed some, some signs. We're going to have a, a serious debate in the European context in that regard, but also in terms of visa uh, systems, which yeah. Stuart, you know well, you were the champion of this Right, of, of,
0: of, of a visa waiver program that right. built in a bunch of
4: security. Right. We've already heard Senator Feinstein talking about a relook at what the visa waiver program actually looks like and how it's structured, and, and so that, that is now on the table questions of detention. You have the ongoing debate in the United Kingdom around control orders again, right? right? How do you you deal with potentially dangerous suspect individuals who have ties to known terrorist groups but who have not committed criminal acts and about which you can't predict uh, the timing or even the intent of their activities? And so what what does a preventive model look like? Now, as you've said, in the Napoleonic system, uh, the prosecutor magistrates have a lot of discretion. They can hold people for three to five years in detention while they investigate, right? And, and so there are different modalities and different systems. But I think all of those questions now, again, come to the fore, and it puts those who've been advocating for a curtailing of those uh, tools, a bit on their back, on their heels,
0: and it reshapes the debate. So one of the things that I've been thinking about, I, I, I got a call from the New York Times. They wanted some little mini op-ed for uh, uh, their room for debate thing mm-hmm. on uh, what does it mean for U.S. law. And I said, to, uh, well, What it shows is that when people come back from these foreign jihads, they can be dangerous a really long time because the the French watched these guys for a long time and then they ran out of resources and stopped watching them. And as they pointed out, it takes 20 people just to put a 24-7 watch on on somebody. Um, And I said, yeah, we're going to have that same problem. Uh, We don't even have a law that makes it illegal to go fight in those wars. Uh, And so my suggestion was we should make it illegal to fight in those wars, and then we should mostly uh, suspend sentences but put people on 10 years of probation uh, because once you're on probation, all the um, uh, rules on uh, what a search and seizure uh, has to be justified by uh, go by the board. And the question is, uh, is this a reasonable effort to prevent uh, uh, relapse and uh, to rehabilitate the person?
4: No, it, it's a very smart suggestion, and it, it's reflective of a challenge that all Western societies are now having to grapple with, which is w- what is that middle ground between uh, pure freedom and freedom of movement communications and detention uh, for criminality. And what is in between when you do have uh, what is now called in France of War, an ongoing set of threats? This administration has defined imminence of threat very broadly. So there's no sort of chronological scope to the way we define legally imminence in terms of potential attacks. And so what is that middle ground for? Uh, preventing future attacks while respecting privacy, civil liberties, and and the rest. And I think your suggestion is is one of those uh, grounds. Thematically, I think what's important here too is I think the last couple of years you've seen a bit of an assault on the idea of the use of intelligence as evidence, the right. use of different standards other than pure criminal standards to define suspicion, to define how individuals are treated. And I think that debate will reemerge in different ways as well. You saw that debate on the no-fly, in the no-fly context. You've seen it in the context of surveillance and the standards applied. And so as we talk about the legal, uh, sort of uh, parameters of this, I think the undercurrent here is how much are we willing as a society to allow intelligence, uh, and the use of intelligence in a prospective preventative way
0: to define how we legally treat citizens or non-citizens. You know, I, I, I think we shouldn't ignore the fact that uh, some of these returning jihadis are going to turn out to have had a really miserable experience, basically saying, I thought I admired these guys, and now look what a mess they've made, sort of like when I went to an Ivy League college. <laughs> I, hey, watch it. <laughs> uh, They're going to be an intelligence resource for us. It's not that we want to punish everybody or discourage them from coming back. We just need to watch them very, very carefully.
4: Right, and and in fact, you've seen in Europe, uh, the Danish, for example, uh, building in a reintegration rehabilitation program. You've seen for years when we were working in the Bush administration, countries like Singapore with their gold-plated uh, rehabilitation program, where they they have communities involved to try to ensure that people who are radicalized find a way back into their society. So they're not being punished, they're being reintegrated. Um, and you've seen this debate, especially in the wake of the arrest of the three uh, teenage girls who were out of Colorado, headed to the Middle East uh, to perhaps join the Islamic State or Nusra or one of these other groups. Uh, the debate even from within the FBI it would be great to hear Michael's opinion on this uh, as to whether or not there is some other model, not prosecuting them or not finding a material support case to make, but instead finding a way to rehabilitate them or reintegrate them and certainly counterterrorism authorities have thought about this for years, how to use the disaffection within these groups uh, to to, uh, attack the ideology and the attractiveness of the narrative the Saudis were very good at this uh, during the height of the Iraq foreign fighter flows, right. where they would put disaffected individuals on TV to give testimonials as to why the jihad that was being claimed against uh, the troops in in Iraq was not legitimate, and why these uh, individuals who claimed to be uh, sacred
0: warriors were anything but. Yeah. No. It. it the, the problem for the government is um, if it's 99% effective, it's the one percent that gets you fired.
4: No. That's that's right. And. and Again, that's another reality of the counterterrorism debate, whether you're talking about how the administration views this or how the Hill views this. There is a bit of zero tolerance still uh, Mm -hmm. around counterterrorism. Now, Boston, I think, shifted that a bit. Uh, I think we were were less – we we didn't eat our own uh, in the wake of that. And I think there was a a greater sense of uh, strength in in resilience and and, uh, in the response. Boston strong became the theme as opposed to got it wrong. Right. Um, and I just make that up. Good. Good. I like it. I like it. But, but, it's, but it's true. I think. I mean, that was one of the great lessons of Boston. It really didn't become an act of recrimination within uh, the, the political scene. It became more of an act of how can we prove that this type of event isn't going to cripple us? Uh, and that was, I think, a very important moment for the U.S. Whether or not that persists, and if we have a more strategic attack, whether or not that holds, it's a very good question. But certainly, no counterterrorism official that I know. No President, no uh, sort of leader of a, a, an important committee will want to find themselves in a position having to defend why a significant
0: terrorist attack happened in the United States yeah uh, I, I think that's right so let me let me tilt this. Um, the deputy director of the CIA has been chosen from the Treasury Department from basically the job that you helped create uh, uh, David Cohen. Uh, I bet you and Jason probably know him. Uh, Pretty well, pretty well. Very well. He um, is a
4: great, a great public servant, and uh, it's a good, very good move. Uh, what, the, the thing I find fascinating here, and again, it relates to the, the book I wrote, Treasury's War, and, and the themes in that book is that Treasury itself as an institution and the tools uh, that the Treasury brings to bear, its relationship, financial suasion, its authorities, its regulations, its sanctions – have now really become a central part of our national security strategy and dialogue. Uh, It was always a part of the national security community, but post 9-11 really accelerated the role of Treasury as a core part of our
0: national issue. Actually, until until 9-11, as a reaction to Iran-Contra, there was a rule in place at Treasury that you could not talk to or interact with the intelligence community in any way without the approval of the Secretary of Treasury, uh, which was nuts, but understandable since they got into so much trouble. That's totally gone.
4: Absolutely. We often talk about the law enforcement intelligence wall, Uh, That existed before the Patriot Act, there was both uh, legal policy and lore that divided the Treasury from the real elements of the national security establishment. That all broke down post 9-11 with the notion that we had to use all elements of national power uh, to go after not just terrorists, but also America's enemies. And that, frankly, Treasury had
0: unique tools, capability and reach to actually undermine uh, the bottom line of America's enemies. So one of the things that was crucial to that, if I remember right, was in the USA Patriot Act, uh, the provision that allowed the Treasury to rely on and maintain the confidentiality of classified information in making its decisions about uh, who to sanction. Uh, and that has become the, kind of the underpinning of, of, of many sanctions programs, and especially the individual sanctions. Uh, I, and and what I kind of hoped we could do is talk a little bit about uh, where we think the sanctions on North Korea are going, what they, what the impact of the sanctions we've already had is, uh, uh, and uh, what more um, uses of classified information uh, if in a North Korean sanctions program we might foresee. Let me ask, uh, just for a second, uh, Meredith, can you tell us what the sanctions... Are that were announced against North Korea as a result of the Sony attack? (laughs) Very quickly.
3: (laughs) I I promise not to get too wonky on this. But yeah, following the Sony attack, basically the the U.S. government um, implemented pretty targeted sanctions against a relatively limited group of individuals, 10 North Korean government officials, um, most of whom probably had no involvement whatsoever in the Sony attack. And then three, uh, three government uh, entities, uh, intelligence, uh, procurement, weapons procurement, and weapons
0: sales. So the, 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 the news there is we actually didn't have sanctions on the people who bought weapons for North Korea until now.
3: Uh, some of them. There were other arms. Right. Did that and there were some sanctions, but, but on this particular entity, yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the executive order uh, is is broader than that, and of course, allows for more things beyond that. But that's the immediate. End.
0: So um, it it doesn't sound very focused, uh, um, and there is a promise of more to come. Uh, Juan, why do you think that this particular announcement came now, and why is it so uh, unfocused?
4: Well, in the first instance, uh, you know, we've retreated to the use of sanctions as sort of a principal policy response in national security crises or moments like this when, when obviously going to war isn't an option and more obvious uh, solutions aren't uh, sort of uh, readily at hand. And so we retreat to the executive orders and IEPA as sort of the policy tool of choice. Uh, And so what you're left with is Treasury officials and officials at OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, trying to craft Solutions that make sense. One of the interesting things here to me is, um, as Meredith said, you know, some of this is, is very targeted. Some of it repeats uh, elements of targeting the past, so, so the entities have been named before. Uh, but it does two interesting things. One, it opens up the scope of considering a cyber attack as part of an international economic emergency. And I've been arguing for some time, and I think you and I have talked about this, Stuart. That in thinking about um, the cyber attacks and, and espionage that uh, the U.S. private sector has been enduring, there's an argument to be made that that's part of an ongoing international economic emergency, and that we may need to think about a broader sanctions program that deals with cyber intrusion and cybersecurity more broadly, not just in specific cases like cases like Sony and North Korea, but more broadly as a systemic threat and then think aggressively and, and strategically about how we use those tools. This, in some ways, puts the camel's nose under the tent in terms of the potential use of these kinds of targeted financial sanctions yeah. in the cyber, cyber context. So it's in some ways a complement to the indictment of the PLA officers. That's the use of criminal tools. This is beginning to use these financial tools or sanctions in an interesting way. The, the, the other thing I would say is, you, you poo pooed a little bit the, the naming of some of these individuals who were procurement officers for the North Koreans. Part of this is that debate with the intelligence community about how much you reveal. About ah, they, we, we, we
0: actually know who they are yeah. and what they're so, doing. So yeah.
4: part of the reason we do this twofold. One is you now signal to the North Koreans, we know who you are, we know what you're doing. So, some of that they obviously already know, we know. Uh, but secondly, it puts pressure on the host countries, like in Russia, like in China. Uh, like in any of the places that they've been identified, to actually do something about it. And so diplomatically, I imagine one thing that happens now is to ask those countries, have you shut down those networks, have you investigated, have you frozen their assets, and to begin to put pressure on North Korea from the outside in. Well, if they wanted to go ahead. I
3: was just going to say, one of the, I think, key elements of this most recent executive order that I really haven't seen talked about much at all in the news, Is the provision that uh, that allows the Secretary of the Treasury to designate anybody who's materially assisted uh, the government of North Korea.
0: So that means that they're going to be able to name people on a rolling basis if they want to.
3: And it's not, and they may never do that. It's not just the naming, but it's that chilling effect. It's
0: the threat. Well.
4: And to your point about post-9-11, what really propelled Treasury in this field? It was the use of financial intelligence. It was the ability to, to use intelligence more aggressively and then to have that reviewed ex parte in camera if need be. But it was also the executive order signed by President Bush, EO 13224, which, like this one, opened the scope of potential targets to allow then the Secretary of Treasury to name not just a terrorist like Osama bin Laden or Ayman al-Zawahiri, but to say the financial facilitators and even the banks that are doing business with these entities are now susceptible to this nuclear financial weapon. And that begins to not only open up the target space, so to speak, if you're talking about this in in, uh, militant terms, uh, but also then begins to chill the environment and affect. Uh, exactly
0: what Meredith just described in the North Korean context. So I, uh, it's conceivable that they could decide, and this would really certainly put the cat among the pigeons, is, is that they're going to sanction that hotel that apparently is housing most of the North Korean hackers in northern China. And they just say, this, this hotel is, uh, is subject to sanctions. It's going to make it very hard for them to bank. Uh, and it's certainly, you know, when it's in China, it raises for the Chinese a very awkward question. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And when it's driven by data and facts, this goes
4: back to the issue of how much can the FBI reveal and how do you prove attribution? Right. This is really a key part of how these sanctions potentially have broader impact. But one of, the, one of the effects of the Banco Delta Asia Section 311 action that we took in September of 2005 was that ripple effect around the world to say, look, this is the bank or one of the banks in Macau that is facilitating a whole range of illicit conduct uh, for the North Koreans. And that meant that banks in China, Russia, Mongolia, Vietnam, anyone who had an account with North Korea or thought they were doing business with North Korean agents suddenly had to worry, to include the Chinese, about uh, U.S. Treasury focus and the potential sanctions. And that tempered the market. It affected them. And the North Koreans told us at the time, you finally found a way to hurt us.
0: Yeah, the, I, the, and, and, and I have to say, this is uh, uh, both uh, – uh, Meredith and I read your book, and it was great. then the best story is the story about <laughs> Bangkok Delta Asia. Uh, right. I, I, and I, I guess – uh, my memory, though, is that that didn't actually end, didn't have a happy ending. It was kind of, uh, we had them dead to rights, and then they they did a few things that were sort of symbolically pleasing to the State Department. The State Department said, okay, let's lift the sanctions, and they didn't know how to lift them in a way that would actually not cause them never to really work very well again. I, I, so what's your sense of, can we go back? to that um, tool at this point, or is it really permanently blunted?
4: I think the fundamentals and the paradigm that drove that action still exist, right? And so you see this thematically in the executive order that uh, that Meredith just described. Um, It's difficult, though, to replicate it exactly. And and in in the halls of government, you often have people saying, we're looking for the next BDA. Mm -hmm. You're never going to get the next BDA exactly, uh, in part because the North Koreans have just figured out how to work around it. Uh, the Chinese, in some ways, are helping them, and the Chinese themselves decided we're never going to find ourselves in this position again either, where a unilateral American action forces us to side with the Americans. Yeah, the banks For, all to, sold their government out. Right. Okay. And, and the, the Chinese government literally said, we are not going to touch these transactions. And, in fact, when the unwinding of the measures took place, I, I have this episode in the in the book, uh, members of the Chinese leadership uh, from the finance ministry and central bank actually uh, excoriated and chided U.S. Treasury officials for having backed down because they saw this as an important element of their own strategies and campaigns internally to bring anti-money laundering sanctions compliance to the fore. And so part of that was rhetorical and, and diplomatic right. ploy, but part of it, it's an interesting and revealing episode. But those tools are still there. Um, but in this case, you you would have to define the illicit conduct clearly. You would have to demonstrate it. And um, I think the next stage in all of this is can you define this as an international economic
0: emergency? Well, surely you Uh, can, right? Because almost anything. I mean, mean, we've got Belarusian oligarchs. No, that's right. You
4: can legally, I think. And then what does that mean for the marketplace? What does that mean for the facilitators? What does it mean for the companies that benefit from stolen data via cyber breach? What does that then mean for private sector actors? Does, Does the plaintiff's bar get involved? Does Congress allow for private rights of action, as we've seen with terrorist victims? Uh, to be able to go after not just the source of the attacks, but those benefiting from them. the terrorist
0: lawsuits benefited from the findings that Treasury has made about individuals? Uh, can you introduce those into evidence? Because that would be powerful.
4: Absolutely. I mean, you, you saw the Arab Bank case most recently. You've got the Bank of China case <laughs> unfolding where uh, what governments say and frankly don't say or don't publish becomes centrally material to the case and to the proof. In fact, one of the defenses to this is banks can't be assumed to know more about their customers, especially terrorist links, than what the government puts out and prohibits. The significance of the airbank Bank ruling, at least as it now stands, is that banks are now being charged with uh, the duty to understand beyond the lists that are put out by OFAC or Israel or any other gov- legitimate authority or government, what, what are your customers doing? What is the uh, exposure? And if they are putatively part of a terrorist organization, the bank shouldn't be doing business with them, regardless of what the government
3: says. And, and going back to the chilling effect there, so, so with North Korea sanctions, um, you know, I, I, as outside counsel, um, whenever something happens in sanctions, often when it doesn't, uh, clients, U.S. businesses, U.S. companies, call us with questions and they request guidance. That almost never happens with North Korea sanctions, right? U.S. companies...
0: Yeah, because no, no one does business with North Korea. Nobody does.
3: And, and it's not that they can't, by the way. The, the, the OFAC sanctions are more limited than they are for some other countries, like Iran or Cuba or Sudan or Syria. U.S. companies can do probably more than they think they can with North Korea. But they don't, and they won't. Uh, but the questions that we get usually, usually form banks who are terrified of that. Yes. And who, even if a transaction is not technically subject to U.S. jurisdiction, even if it's not going to be cleared through a U.S. dollar account in the U.S. somewhere, they are worried about this. And and this precedent that you just mentioned, Vaughn, makes them even more afraid because, you know, not not only afraid, but, but they do a resource calculation and they say, do we really want to have to
0: dig in? Yes. Yeah, somebody's yeah. going to give me somebody's going to give me thirty dollars to do an electronic funds transfer, and then I'm going to have a billion dollar liability. Uh, so I'm not going to do it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, even if it's perfectly legal, I just don't need uh, the tourists. Uh, uh, yeah, that uh, that that makes lots of sense. So that means thinking about this. If the government does goes down the the road that that Juan and I would would send them, they would designate those six PLA members uh, and uh, uh, freeze their assets and make them outcasts from the international financial system. They might uh, do the same to the hotel in uh, uh, northern China. They might do the same to companies that have received stolen information and used it exactly right so this is very interesting because last week we had Jim Lewis on um, and he said this is this Chinese PLA espionage is beyond the Communist Party and the leadership of China's ability to control because it's a racket. If you steal information from a competitor of a Chinese company, you can sell the information to the Chinese company. And that's what PLA generals are doing. That was what he said. Uh, Now you can name the PLA general and you can name the guy who, the company that bought it. And those guys are going to have a hell of a time selling anywhere outside of China.
4: And I agree with that, and I think where the Chinese put themselves in a box is where we can demonstrate that that's tied to corruption. Because the Chinese have made corruption such a key and important part of their public policy program that to the extent that you have, whether it's sanctions evasion, commercial activity, cyber espionage, that then links to corruption, there I think there's a real strategic advantage for the U.S. to be able to make the case that these are things that... Not only are damaging to the US economy, but that matter
0: systemically uh, to the system and matter in a way that Beijing has said they care about. So let me, let me, to close this up. Let me turn to the last question, which is the U.S. government has run around the world, uh, uh, and it's a bipartisan, longstanding policy that there should be norms about cyber war, and the number one norm, you asked Richard Clark, is don't attack banks with cyber attacks. Uh, uh, And the principal result of that, I've said before, is that uh, whenever somebody wants to get our goat, they attack our banks. So the Iranians attacked uh, the banks with DDoS. the, um, uh, the North Koreans have attacked South Korean banks. Uh, um, and I guess my question is, one, could could you use sanctions to sort of create a norm that says the entire banking system around the world will shun people who are known to have attacked banks? Or two, should we just give up on this and start attacking the the banks that are carrying North Korean accounts and just, you know... Uh, do self-help uh, reimbursement of companies that have suffered, like Sony, as a result of North Korean attacks by withdrawing the funds and crediting it to Sony? Right.
4: Um, I don't think this is the moment to sort of open up the space for the attack of the financial system using Western tools. I think there's still a normative argument to be made that the U.S. in particular, but also the West, really is a responsible keeper of the financial order, um, Uh, Hank Paulson, the former Secretary of the Treasury, used to talk talk about this as the magnificent glass house. Mm -hmm. The U.S. really has been at the center of the trust of the international global financial system in order. And to destroy that trust or to be seen as uh, less than um, a a good steward of it is a really problematic uh, sort of place to be in. But there's no doubt that other actors in the system now with these asymmetric capabilities are beginning to think about what the banks provide in terms of vulnerabilities to the West. The North
0: North Koreans probably see themselves as a a magnificent rock pile.
4: No, (laughs) and and, and they understand, first and foremost, it's a source of great data, it's a source of money, of course, uh, but also systemically incredibly important, both in terms of their own isolation and just in terms of how the Western economy and global system works. And so you're going to see more of these attacks. I, I, I would argue that we do exactly what you described, which is to, to establish a norm using authorities where attacks on banks are treated incredibly seriously because right. of the significance and use law enforcement tools, financial tools, and others. But I also think, and, and again, Stuart, you and I have talked about this. I've talked to Jim Lewis about it as well. I think in the financial context, we should begin to experiment with the cyber privateering model. This is where the government and banks work much more closely together uh, to the point about information sharing, to actually not only prevent these kinds of attacks, but perhaps to allow the banks to counter on their own when appropriate and necessary. this wasn't wouldn't be the wild wild West, but could there be some structures established that basically takes from the lessons of maritime security of the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries nineteenth uh, century to a certain extent uh, the letters of mark and reprisal to allow at certain instances legitimate Use of private sector uh, capabilities to defend systems and to hack back or attack back. I think we should, as we said the other day in the in the, uh, the meeting that we both attended. I think we should push the envelope as to what that kind of a construct would look like and in limited cases what it means. But by no stretch do we do. I think we should have open season on all banks. And I think the more that um, banks are at the, in the crosshairs of
0: uh, nefarious actors in the cyber domain. The more dangerous the world is. So if you want if you want American privateers in uh, cyberspace, you're probably going to have to make the Justice Department walk the plank first, uh, which right. I'd be happy to do <laughs> in this case because uh, I think they're just irresponsible. Uh, uh, but uh, living up to your reputation as the Lord Byron of policy, I love it. Uh, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, you should I, at least think about it. Yes, yeah, exactly. This is <laughs> that's that's what I always would yeah. say when people uh, express shock. I said, "Well, it, it ought to be on the table as an option." Uh, uh, if nothing else, when the Chinese steal our briefing papers, they'll, this one might scare them. Yeah. Um, all right. I, so uh, thank you so much. This was My terrific. What a, what, a, what a great uh,
4: presentation. Great, what a great set of partners Partners and uh, what a great podcast series you've got thank you for having me
0: terrific well thank you all I uh, thank you Meredith uh, Jason uh, Michael uh, and as a reminder the cyber law podcast is open to feedback uh, send questions suggestions for interview candidates uh, other Topics, comments to Cyberlaw Podcast at StepToe.com. If you'd like to leave a message, uh, we're still waiting for an entertainingly abusive uh, message we can play on the air. I guarantee you will do it. One two zero two eight six two five seven eight five. This has been episode forty-nine of the StepToe Cyberlaw Podcast. Brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Upcoming guests include Jeff Carr and Tom Ridd, uh, uh, debating uh, how to do attribution in cyberspace, uh, and Becky Richards from the NSA Privacy Office. Uh, and uh, as a change of pace, Julie Grill. FTC Commissioner, has agreed to do a, uh, an interview with me in the state we all love best, which is Vermont, uh, so I'll go up and do that over uh, the, uh, uh, the, the President's Day weekend. Uh, I wonder if this means I can... Uh, go ski uh, And deduct it. <laughs> okay, we hope, you, <laughs> we hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.